0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. As the leaves fall, the wind blusters, and people prepare to give thanks. The laughter of children has disappeared from the classrooms of many school districts, from sea to shining sea. In many districts, children are isolated at home, learning in episodic ways, and the education divide is growing still further apart. Schools are providing instruction only to those with websites, access to the internet, and to parents who are willing and able to become the family teacher. Some blame the pandemic for remaining too severe to justify any reopening of the schools, but as we discussed on last week's podcast, less than one-tenth of one percent of children Test positive, and most of them are asymptomatic and extremely unlikely to contribute to community spread. In other countries such as Ireland, schools remain open, even though the government has placed new restrictions on bars, restaurants, barbershops and hairdressers. So why are so many US schools remaining closed? Well, in the just released analysis, Michael Hartney and Leslie Finger, professors at Boston College and the University of Texas, report that the main factors explaining closures has almost nothing to do with coronavirus spread. What does it have to do with, then? Well, I'm pleased to have with me on the Education Exchange Michael Hartney, a professor at Boston College and the senior author of this provocative new paper. Michael, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange.
1: It's great to be here, Paul, thanks for having me.
0: Well, Michael, you find in your paper that if a school district is located in a county that voted for Donald Trump, it was more likely to open its schools than if it was located in a county that voted for Clinton. Well, how? first of all, how did you get the data to produce this uh, amazing finding?
1: Right, so um, one of the things that's uh, been remarkable is that those of us who study Uh, local education politics usually have a huge data deficit. That is, unlike uh, political scientists who get to study members of Congress and state legislatures, we don't typically have outcomes that we can analyze, like roll call votes uh, or the like, that are consistent across uh, states and districts. But in this case, uh, we look at the coronavirus as almost sort of a natural experiment. And what we mean by that is that every single one of the nation's 14,000 plus school districts had to come out publicly with a decision roughly around the same time as to whether they were going to reopen classes fully traditionally to in-person learning to have fully remote learning or to be in some sort of a hybrid setup and so fortunately because this is such an important thing not just politically but to parents and everyday americans um, there has really been a, a rich array of data that's been collected. Um, so in particular, in our study, we relied on data from an organization called MCH Data, uh, which collected uh, reopening information for about 10,000 of the nation's 14,000 districts. So we went with the database that had the most information, but I'm happy to report, and I should say up front, that um, many other organizations from Education Week, uh to the center on reinventing public education out in seattle washington have all collected various different databases and our results are rather consistent regardless of which of these databases we use but that's that's the background of the data here
0: so how reliable is the source that you are using for the paper it's got the most districts so that's that's a big asset but are they really getting accurate data from 10,000 different districts? Can you be confident of that?
1: Yeah, that? That's a great question. So one of the things we were able to do to sort of cross-check and make sure uh, that this data was at least uh, fairly reliable to tease out some broad trends uh, was that there are several states, Ohio, for example, Virginia where the state departments of education, um, Massachusetts is another one, have required the districts to certify what they're doing directly with the state DOE. And so we were able to cross check MCH's data with that, and it was fairly reliable. I I should say though, um, another important thing for folks who who read the paper, um, it's important to take note here that that what we're capturing was was a district's first impulse. That is, Did they decide to start off the school year uh, with traditional in-person learning, fully remote, or or this hybrid model, we can't say anything about the dynamic patterns that we know have changed in some way. So what we're really measuring here is, you know, districts stepping back, looking at COVID, looking at these other factors, what was their first inclination? So that is one limitation that I want to put out there about the data. But it does do a good job of capturing, particularly, I want to emphasize, for the, the two extreme options, that is fully in-person Uh, or fully remote shut down completely online education. Uh, Another aspect of this is hybrid means a lot lot of different things and the data can't really get at that middle category too
0: well. So um, are you going back into the field in, uh, you know, six weeks or a month or so forth and and do a double check to see whether or not this still, this pattern still holds up or does it change as people get into the real world of uh, running a school system.
1: Yeah, that's where some of um, you know, and I would really encourage state departments of education that have the wherewithal to keep track of this, that researchers, we can learn a lot if you provide the data. And in, in a few cases they are. Um, Ohio seems to be updating uh their database on a weekly basis so we can see which districts move maybe they started um in person and they've had to roll back or maybe they started hybrid and they've actually gotten kids back into the classroom. So we will be able to study the dynamic element of this over time. Uh, And in several states, Massachusetts is a great example of this, where the state releases a, a weekly COVID report at the town level. So you're not even just looking at what is COVID look like at a county level, you can actually observe what are schools doing and how are they responding to changes in the state's own definition of severity of the COVID crisis in a local community. So
0: there, we will be able to get a dynamic element. Uh, of well, I, I encourage you to keep, keep on this because it's certainly, certainly a, a absolutely fascinating set of findings that you have uh, come up with now. So now, you do find some effects of the severity of the coronavirus pandemic in a particular county on school closing do you not right so i think the way to think
1: about this is it's important to differentiate what uh, is a statistically significant effect and what is a substantively important one so there are some measures of covid what we what we call covid intensity or the spread of the pandemic that were statistically significant. Um, but that's not altogether surprising given but that- we you have 10,000 cases. Right, we have 10,000 cases, so that's not particularly surprising. What was more surprising is that even if you move, say, we'll talk in standard deviation terms, if you move, if you increase an entire standard deviation in, say, the COVID incidence rate, and what that refers to for listeners, um, you know, di- different states are doing this in different ways, But essentially, um, what a lot of public health experts have said is we shouldn't be paying attention to the cumulative number of cases and deaths since March. That's not really the best way to measure what's going on in a local community. Instead, what we look at is, what is the two-week new case rate that was happening at the time that school boards had to make a judgment about whether to reopen or not? So we look right in August as they're making these decisions, what does that two-week case rate look like? And we find that um, a standard deviation increase on that new case rate was associated only with a one percentage point difference in whether a district chose to open in person or remote. And in contrast to that, a standard deviation increase in the percentage of the vote for Donald Trump, which we use as this proxy for partisanship, was associated with over a 15 percentage point. Increase in what a district elected to do. So the short end, a short story here is that politics overwhelmingly, at least in this correlational setup, politics overwhelmingly trumped uh, the severity of the public health crisis in a district in terms of predicting how they proceeded this
0: fall. I'm tempted to say 15 times as important. That's probably not quite right, but uh, it, it, it's a order of magnitude larger impact than the uh, impact of the uh, now. Somebody could say, however, that you really should be looking not simply at the number of new cases, but you should be looking at the trend. So the number of new cases in that two-week period as distinct from the two-week period prior to that, have you tried that way of measuring the severity of the Potential what can,
1: pandemic. What I can tell you, and and for anyone who's listening who's skeptical, I would I would put it this way. And Leslie and I have said this to a few reporters so far. If you have a metric that you think that's available and that you think is is really sort of the missing metric here, please email us. We will add it to our statistical analysis. And I can tell you, I John Hopkins the Johns Hopkins Pandemic Vulnerability Index, which is just a tremendous resource has information on comorbidity at the local level, almost anything you could want, not just cases. And I can tell you, no matter what we put into the model, that variable for partisanship just does not go away, that effect. Uh, it it, It really doesn't matter how you measure not just COVID, but maybe what we would expand upon COVID and say, the vulnerability of a particular community based on its density, uh, whether it relies on uh, public trans, uh, transportation, what have you. Um, and that would include also the, what you're talking about, the arc of the virus, how intense uh, has the increase been uh, headed into August? So we so far haven't been able to find something that will break these models. Um, so, so we'd be interested in, in hearing thoughts on that. All right, so that's a pretty good answer,
0: because uh, yeah, that's all very testable. Uh, and uh, the question I have though, is why? Why should party politics make such a difference?
1: Yeah, and so th- you know, to get at this answer is we're really going to have to look at uh, um, and we haven't gotten to do to doing this partly because um, we've not yet found suitable data to do so. But what you really want is um, you want public opinion data. Uh, where you can measure, um, particularly over time. Um, one theory that we have is that President Trump, uh, because he's such a polarizing figure in contemporary American politics, that when he went out on a limb and took a very public stand through his tweets uh, in early July, around July 6th, uh, and then in a major speech on July 7th, in fact, um, when that happened, we think that sort of transformed. Uh, the debate here. It's not that it perhaps wasn't already moving in that direction. I think Republicans and Democrats could see the writing on the wall that as an incumbent president, you know, this was going to be baggage. And so if you were a Republican, there may have been an incentive to downplay how bad things were going to get. And vice versa, if you were a Democrat, there was an incentive to play it up that the, that the virus could never be beaten. Um, and so I think that some of the writing was on the wall, but when Trump spoke on July 7th, I think that nationalized this issue in a way uh, in which we don't typically see uh, education politics nationalized. That's not to say that politics doesn't matter in education debates at the local level. But remember, we're talking about a very technocratic public health decision here. We're not talking about sex education. We're not talking about fights over vouchers. We're talking about whether millions of kids are simply going to go back to school as they normally do every fall or whether they're going to stay at home and learn in front of a computer machine. And so we wouldn't typically think of that as something that people see through the prism of partisan politics. But I do think that a large element of that um, is simply the fact that we're living in a highly polarized time. And and once the president took a strong position, you saw the opposite from Democrats and Democratic governors around the
0: country. Uh, But how about the media? So as soon as the president takes a position, the democratic media, if I can call it that, uh, begins to, uh, you know, um, highlight how dangerous the COVID is and the Republican media highlights how it really isn't all that dangerous when you're talking about uh, young kids going back to school yeah
1: you know media consumption probably plays a big role here uh you know our work dovetails nicely if i can give a plug to another political scientist uh dan hopkins uh at upenn who has a great book out talking uh providing a lot of evidence of local politics maybe no longer being about potholes and snow plowing but rather that all sort of local political issues have begun to take on a national element. And so some of the evidence he provides is that things like whether you live near a military base, for example, or whether you live near a nuclear power plant, those those things don't necessarily play out as powerfully in predicting your positions on those issues as do your national partisan political attachments. Well, when it comes to the media, um, one of the issues here is how much media consumption do people do of, say, local news that's just reporting the facts, if you will, on what's going on in the local schools? No, they're they're going to be drawing their stories about schools by reading NBC, ABC debates over the Academy of Pediatrics and Trump. So everything now comes with a national dimension. And given that, uh, it's not surprising that
0: uh, partisans at a local level digested the information that But how about parents? I mean, parents have their own kids. They want their kids to get educated. On the other hand, they may be fearful about them getting sick if they go to school. So uh, can you really, are, are parents really making these kinds of judgments about their own children based on political chit chat?
1: Well, that's a great question. So I'll do something a social scientist probably shouldn't typically do, which is start with an anecdote and then say how we ought to study this more systematically. The anecdote is I could tell you as a, as a college professor and as someone I should add that doesn't have kids, right? So I had to do a lot of soaking and poking in this research from talking to friends. And most of them are academics, so you know their politics are firmly in the progressive camp. Um, I have seen a slow change myself in the attitudes of some of these parents who will not be voting for Donald Trump by any stretch of the imagination, but who have grown frustrated with what they perceive um, as as politics overwhelming, um, sort of sensible decision-making about whether to reopen schools in their own communities, coming back from school board meetings and saying, wow, I've you know i always been a supporter of my teachers union, but why are they now suggesting that schools should be online through uh, August as Fairfax County, Virginia recently announced. And I know Montgomery County in Maryland has also uh, taken a lot of flack for the fact that they said that they weren't going to even consider reopening until February of 2021. So I do think that there's frustration from parents, even politically liberal or democratic parents, um, but we'll need to get some good micro-survey data to look at the various um, components of this, whether partisanship actually does overwhelm overwhelm one's self-interest as a parent in making sure that their children are able to return to, to school. Well, the
0: other variable in your analysis is, uh, tr- is in fact, unions. You brought up unions. Uh, and, and that may not be as big a deal as partisanship in your analysis, but it's a pretty big deal. So but how do you measure the influence of the teacher unions what's your strategy there this was tricky
1: um and we've we've taken a little bit of cri- criticism about this aspect of the paper um and we, and so i want to start by acknowledging Uh, why we do what we do, uh, and and how it's a bit of a shortcoming, but how we also have some pretty robust evidence uh, that the um, strength of a local teachers union does appear to matter in the equation here. So we started with the simplest measure, um, which is the size of the school district. Now, the problem with that, so why would we do that? Well, there is Um, there are several research studies that show, whether through surveys of school board members looking at union membership numbers, that unions tend to be stronger in larger school districts. So that is not an implausible way to measure union strength. Uh, However, uh, we must admit that there are lots of things about larger school districts that also might preclude them from opening rapidly. I mean, to, uh, to take the simplest case, just a larger school district confronts more logistical challenges in getting all of those students back to the classroom, or perhaps their HVAC systems aren't quite up to snuff, and it's going to require more time for them to get kids back to school. That might not be the unions, even if those districts also have stronger unions. So for a subset of our districts, about 20% in our sample, we were able to identify whether they had, um, whether they bargained collectively with school employees or not. And so when we use that more refined measure of union strength, we also find an association between a district preferring remote-only education or what we call canceling in-person classes uh, and the presence of a union, remember, controlling for uh, the severity of COVID in the community and all of those other factors. So this is an independent effect that we find that unions have on top of all of the other predictors.
0: For twenty percent of the observations, and uh, now is that a, is, is that as big effect as you get for the size? Are they roughly the same order of magnitude? Uh, yeah, I sp- would say they're a fairly similar magnitude. And something else that's worth
1: mentioning is we do something that's fairly common in social science, which uh, you know, when we can't run an experiment, is we try to think cleverly about this and come up with with what we call a placebo test. And and our placebo test is we reason that, well. In our data set from mch data they asked school districts are you returning to are you going to offer and allow students to participate in sports or in high school athletics in the fall and so we thought about this and we said well that's an interesting measure because um teachers unions should probably care a lot more about whether they're sending the rank and file back into the classroom that affects all of their members but maybe only a, a coach or an assistant coach or two are impacted by athletics. So we looked at whether uh, a school's decision to offer athletics this fall had anything to do with the strength of the local teachers union. We found that it didn't. And and we think that that sort of comports with our prior here that the unions are, and I mean, this is what the news reports suggest, that they are fighting um, pretty strongly. Um, to resist going back into the classroom until they reach levels that they're comfortable with,
0: which is understandable. I want to emphasize. I can't that. resist asking this question, but how about the politics variable? Does that explain uh, the sports uh, uh, outcome too? It does. Yeah.
1: So so there's an article to be written here about how Donald Trump saved uh, Ohio State football for the year, except also at the high school level, apparently. Yeah, there is this relationship, right? And um, uh, so, that, so that's another interesting finding <laughs> that we don't really talk much about, but yeah.
0: Now, um, so the unions seem to be, and this the effect of the union is over and above the effect of political party, right? So your biggest finding is that it's a partisan issue, but over and above that, even in places that may be a Democratic district, is more likely that they won't open if the unions are powerful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I want to be a little cautious in maybe concluding uh, that so strongly simply because we're down to 20% of our sample. Um, but I would say that um, uh, that it's comparable. I think that, uh, that, uh, that swinging partisanship. So what I'd say is that moving from a 60% uh, Trump County to a 60% Clinton County, which is a big swing to be fair, that probably has about the same effect, at least at our, in our analysis. Um, of moving from a district where unions are not empowered to bargain collectively to one that they are. Uh,
0: Now all of your analyses are at the district level, but I thought that you know this policy, that public health issues are being resolved at the state level. It's the governor who's deciding this, uh, the advice of the public health professionals, and they're giving lots of advice down to the districts. I think the Florida governor told them they had to open up, so um you've sort of taken the state out of your story and your by a complicated analysis that you do but but why are you focusing on the district rather than the state yeah that's
1: a great question and um uh you know i don't want to get too much in the in the weeds here for your listeners but um by talking about the 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 statistical choices that we make but you're right what we do is essentially we approached this with the the insight that you just said, which was, you know, if we look across the country, we see governors, uh, Republican governors like Ron DeSantis in Florida, echoing Donald Trump and saying, you better be back in the classroom uh, or we're going to revisit your funding. But then you also see governors uh, like Gavin Newsom and in other Democratic states saying, you know, we need to see case rates that are almost nothing to allow any schools to reopen. Um, But but when we looked at the data, we saw that the majority of states actually were deferring to or allowing localities to make this decision. So by including uh, uh, state fixed effects in our analysis, we aren't able, what we're able to do is rule out these regulatory or political differences across states and really get down to the apples to apples comparisons or what are districts that are under the same gubernatorial leadership, under the same regulatory framework, uh, how are they making decisions based on local conditions? So I do think that that an analysis could be done that would tell us a lot, and it's worth doing, I can sort of tell you what we saw when we did the analysis even though it's not in the paper. It is absolutely the case that states with Democratic governors, the districts are are less likely to reopen, and vice versa, states with Republican governors more likely to open. Um, But we wanted to focus on the local dynamics, mainly because of something we haven't yet talked about, and maybe this is a good segue to that, which is that we wanted to understand how the local political conditions and also how the local market for education, not just public education, but private school choices influenced what districts did. And so to get at that, we needed to make it a district-focused analysis rather than a a state-focused one.
0: Well, you're bringing up the topic that was right on my list here, and that is your amazing finding that if you've got Catholic schools in the community, uh, it's more likely that the district's operated schools will remain open. Uh, So can you talk about that a little bit? So, um,
1: you know, this one, I have to confess this, the idea to look into this, um, I I wish I could say it came from, you know, reading the excellent work of scholars like Caroline Hoxby and others who have looked at the competitive effects. I mean, of course, I was very aware of that research, but it really came to me when I was on a phone call with an old friend from college who has a couple of youngsters who are in the local public schools in Ann Arbor. And he was telling me about how his boss, whose kids go to uh, a local Catholic school, were back in school while his kids were at home. And so I thought a little bit, and and he had had a big, um, I I should probably say here on a podcast, but he had a big disagreement with his wife about whether they should abandon the public schools and send their kids to Catholic
0: schools this year. So it got me thinking, you know, my friend is a- I I gotta interrupt you there on that anecdote because uh, my two grandsons left the public schools to go to a Catholic school in Boston, this okay. very fall for this reason. So you've got one more anecdote for your uh... I've been hearing this from
1: people, right? They're saying, you know, that we want to get our kids something better than what we're getting uh, on the on the Zoom call or on the Google video. Um, and so the more I thought about it, I said, one other thing that was relevant was that my friend is a middle class guy. and you know um he you know if he were located here in Massachusetts he wouldn't have the means to send his kid to Phillips Andover but he probably could find the resources to send them to A reasonably priced parochial school. And so since parochial schools are are the lowest entry point um, in terms of cost in the private market, we decided to look at this um, as sort of what does the market for non-public schooling options look like in the surrounding community of a public school district. And so we looked at the number of Catholic schools per capita, and we also looked at the number of secular schools, the ones that are priced higher, And what we found was that school districts, their decision, the public school districts decisions about whether to shutter their doors or whether to fully open in person was related, was associated with whether there was a dense number of Catholic schools Uh, available for parents to choose from, but we found no relationship for just the number of private secular schools. So there's some theory here um, that you well know um, in this literature that oftentimes public schools do respond uh, to the competitive pressures placed on them of exit. And so, you know, here when we think of exit under normal conditions, when you're getting a typical, you're getting your full public school education and kids are going in five days a week, it may not make sense to you to be willing to shell out the cost uh, of a private school tuition, but when your, your choice or what you're getting for schooling is suddenly changed and it's all online, uh, families may be having this discussion uh, to borrow the, the Joe Biden quote from the debate last night, they're sitting around the table talking about, well, maybe we should give St. Anne's or St. Mary's a look because uh, we know that the Catholic schools, the archdiocese have been much more
0: vigorous in reopening so why is that? I mean, it, it, they're in the same place. Uh, the, the, the COVID is just as bad there in those Catholic neighborhoods as it is in any other part of town. So why is it uh, that you get a different response in the public sector and the Catholic sector?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, let me start out by trying to be fair um, with some apples to apples comparisons. I mean, on the one hand, we need to account for the fact that some of the private schools are much smaller. The campus that they're located on might be more amenable to social distancing. Uh, anyone who's been to a Catholic school, I was educated at a Catholic school, knows that the discipline, they can be a little stricter, so maybe, you know, making sure that the mask wearing or some of the behavioral elements are different. There are all sorts of things that operationally may enable them to do this a little bit um, more easily, but then there also has to be um, something related to what we've seen with higher education, which is they rely on customers. And so, you know, if they were uh, to offer, if the parents uh, if there is a market out there where there are enough parents who for five six seven eight thousand dollars a year during this time of covid want in-person learning these schools are going to try and find a way to offer that because there's a demand for it
0: um, but the other I- thing that's important is that if they don't do that and they lose their customers they go belly up
1: right which has happened in some cases I, at least I've seen some reporting on that that it's been tough for some of these schools Um uh, to stay in business, at least when the closures happened in, in in March. Well,
0: but then how come the secular private schools? You don't see any effects there. You just think they're too pricey to be. A-
1: uh, I think. I mean, you think of a place like San Francisco as one of the cities with the highest number of kids who go to um, private schools, and and I don't think this plays out. I should say um, again, we're doing a big data analysis, so these are average. Uh, Average effects. And we do find something with Catholic schools and I I believe the finding. I think it's real. But uh, you had a great piece run in Ed Next fairly recently. I think Checker Finn wrote a piece on what happened in Montgomery County we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, where the response wasn't, oh, no, we're going to lose students to private schools in Montgomery County, which has about 130 private schools for parents to choose from. The response there from local officials was just to order all of the private schools in the county closed. So there's more than one way to skin a cat here when we think about the political economy of local education. In that case, of course, for for your readers who have read through Checker's piece, and I highly recommend the piece, um, the governor Larry Hogan intervened and actually overturned that blanket shutdown prohibiting private schools from operating in Montgomery County and very sensibly I think said you know we should look at each private school's application on whether they can operate safely rather than just blanket shut them down um, and and you know when Leslie and I looked into this we actually uh, we dug into the details a little bit and, and interestingly enough we found a few a week or two ago the superintendent of Montgomery County Public Schools, um, uh, who's facing a lot of frustration from parents there. And I want re, I want listeners to get a sense of Montgomery County. Right, this is a county that went seventy five percent for Hillary Clinton. So it's a very liberal county, um, but if, we think it's sort of funny policymakers forgot it, it's a very liberal county, but it's also a very rich county. And so with one hundred and thirty private schools to choose from, a very affluent. Uh, uh, base of people, um, you saw a 25% increase, according to Montgomery County Superintendent, a 25% increase in private school enrollments and an 1,800% increase in homeschooling. And and the uh, superintendent admitted this uh, two weeks ago. Said, um, you know, this is obviously a direct response to the dissatisfaction parents have with our remote learning, our remote only learning
0: offerings through
1: 2021.
0: So. I mean that. Pretty well, there you go. So, listen, uh, Michael. This has been a fascinating conversation. I uh, urge our listeners to uh, look it up. Uh, it's it's it, it's available online. I take it and under uh, your name, Michael Hartney and Leslie Finger, and uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul. I've been speaking with Michael Hartney, a professor at Boston College and a National Public Fellow at the Hoover Institution who has, with Leslie Finger, just released a fascinating paper on school closing that says, politics and unions, more than the rate of virus spread are the cause of school closures during the pandemic. I am Paul Peterson. And this is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.